The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. here with Evelyn Kung and she's joining us this morning for Ask Evelyn Kung and we're going to be asking her questions in real time so you guys can be writing in. We are apparently live on YouTube and getting it together on Facebook. So uh, you know the internet is a really it's the wild wild west right now <laughs> and some days the magic works and some days the magic doesn't work. So uh, Evelyn, while we're waiting uh, for everybody to join us, let's take just a couple of seconds and, and tell uh, the folks on YouTube what your role at CARD is. I have many roles at CARD. <laughs> I've been at CARD for almost 30 years. So I, I like to tell people that I've kind of done a little bit of everything around. My, my main role right now is <laughs> clinical systems. My clinical, I was a clinical director for the last 12 years, I guess. And um, now I am actually trying to work with all the different types of systems at CARD that get together. And it can be everything from the system of setting up a clinic to skills, which is our curriculum, to, um, you know, just all the other fun things that just the clinical world touches when we want something being built or developed. So it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> I gotta say, it's it, there's not an actual title for it, but I look at you as being sort of, I don't know, was it the Flintstones that called it the Grand Pooba? Uh, <laughs> like the person that you would go to if you needed advice about something, the person that, you know, for any of us across all of CARD, and that's a lot of people, when we have a clinical question, I think we go to you. Are, tell us when you, are, are you going to do the hard open, Traven? Talk to us. I mean, I, I can if you want, but we're, we're live on everything. Okay, we're just going to, we're going to say we're live and we did not do the opener. Uh, however, there is a legal disclaimer at the opener that says that uh, we this show is brought to you by the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. They are the ones who overwrite it, but that they are not responsible for anything I say or that my guests say, uh, and that any opinions that you express, all of those things are, uh, you know, opinions and that before starting any intensive behavioral intervention program, it is recommended that you consult a professional, a board certified behavior analysis and any decisions you make about treatment for your child or for yourself are solely at your own discretion. Uh, that's almost exactly what it says. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, we wanna make sure that everybody is aware of that. That's an important disclaimer that we play at the start of every show, but as I said, uh, we were having some technical difficulties and now we're, we're live and up and running and we have Evelyn Kung with us and she is an amazing expert in the field of autism. Having been working in this year, th this for you know, 30 years. Close Almost to 30, yeah, it's just about yeah, which, is, which is amazing. 
I, I think there's something about people who start working with kiddos on the autism spectrum when they're really young, they don't really age. Have you guys noticed that? <laughs> that when I tell people, oh, this person has been working in the field for, you know, 25 years and they look like they're 17. I think there's some, uh, you know, the, the <laughs> magic elixir of youth is somewhere in working with kids. So in any case, uh, Evelyn is going to be answering your questions in real time. You guys have many opportunities to write in. And now that we are live on everything, let me just take a moment to say that we are live on YouTube, live on Facebook, Periscope, um, Twitter, and also on our homepage, autism-live.com. You can write in on any of those formats, although I will tell you that the most efficient during a live show are writing in on YouTube and on Facebook. And Traven gets those and he posts them here in the chat for me so that we can read them. It takes a couple of minutes. Please be patient, but write in early with your questions. We're really looking for some questions this morning because, and I have a slight disclaimer, uh, an apology because we asked you guys for questions earlier in the week um, for all of the experts that we were having on, Bonnie Yates, for Temple Grandin, and for Evelyn Kong. And you guys wrote in a lot of questions. Um, and because it was my birthday yesterday, a lot of people wrote in birthday messages and my Facebook page has imploded and I can't find anything in it. So I don't have uh, my hands on all of your questions right now today, uh, but we're gonna find them. We are going to find them and we will get to them, but I apologize that <clears throat> you may have written in a question that I don't have in my hands right now. Just keeping it honest and real, and I apologize to you for that. Uh, but uh, we do have some questions and we're looking for you guys to write in more questions. You can start doing that right now. I do want to say too that those are the places that we are live that I just listed off, but we also after the show is over being live, it podcasts to all of those places and more. We are on iTunes. It's a free download. You can, you have your choice. You can download just the audio or you could download the audio with sound. We would love some reviews on iTunes. Some of you wrote in some reviews uh, last week and what that does, you guys, for us is when you write in a review, it makes it so that thousands more people are able to see that there is a podcast called Autism Live and it's free advertising when you write a review. So please, some of you did that and you helped thousands of individuals in the autism community by doing that. So if you're looking for something to do today that would uh, potentially help a lot of people, that's something you can do to help us to reach people to help them. Uh, but we are also available as a free podcast. Uh, we're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Deezer, and Ghana, and more coming. So really happy and thrilled about that. If there's someplace that you would like us to be and you don't see that, then just write and tell us because Traven is very good. By the way, we are also on BronxNet TV every Tuesday night. Uh, I believe it's at 8.30 on Tuesday night. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Traven. So if you are in the Bronx or Metro New York area and want to check us out on BronxNet TV, we are there and we enjoy being there. And if you would like for us to be on your cable access channel in your area, uh, hook us up, hook us up. We're happy to be. When we started, we said our mission was inspiration and information and on as many screens as we could be for free. And that really hasn't changed. It's just that sometimes we don't know about something until you tell us. And thank you. People are writing in and saying, happy belated birthday. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, and I, 
yesterday was a big reminder to me how lucky I am and to be in the, the family that I am in, the tribe that I am in, and all of you are a part of that tribe. So I appreciate all of you. It's a great reminder of the wonderful, the wonderful life that I'm leading. And there was a time and a day as an autism parent when I didn't know that I would be able to say that. Um, some, somebody asked me yesterday, are you getting nervous because you're, you're staring down the barrel of 60? which ticked me off because I turned 58 yesterday. To me, that's not staring down the barrel of 60. Talk to me about that in a year. Um, and I said, no, I'm not at all afraid because I'm, I'm living the life that I wanna be living. So, um, and having an opportunity to do the things that I hoped that I would be able to do with my child and to give back to the community that made that possible for me. So uh, I'm happy to be in this tribe. So Evelyn is here, and for those of you who are on YouTube, you heard about how many years she's been working for CARD and as an expert and the many different roles that she has held at CARD. But she's here today to give um, you guys uh, some information. Now, the disclaimer for her is that there is no expert in this format that could give you individual specific advice. Uh, in fact, they, they couldn't. So uh, thank you. Somebody said 58 is the new 45. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me feel bad, so, but, but I'll take it. I'll take anything, right? It's above ground. We'll take it. Uh, but in any case, uh, Evelyn is here. She wants to give you information. Please write as much information uh, in that is relevant, uh, including diagnosis and age. And I always like it when you guys tell us where you are in the world because the resources are different in different places. And uh, we're gonna start with a question which deals with exactly that because resources are different and change. So our first question here uh, is, my child has some language. We were doing ABA intensively before the pandemic and he was making great progress. We continued during the pandemic, but with reduced hours. We are losing our intensive program and transitioning to remote services model. I want to be teaching my child to use a device to communicate because I am desperate to know what he is thinking and what he wants. I'm getting a conflicting message about if I should be attempting to use an AAC device or double down on vocal speech. He is four and he is very focused on letters and science and space. What do you think there, Evelyn? I love it. <laughs> One of the first things that came to my mind was, yes, this pandemic has hit us in so many strange ways, but just because you're moving to remote does not mean you have, you're going to lose intensity. Okay. You can do 40 hours or more per week in any modality we've learned through this pandemic. Families that were getting that 40 hours a week intensive, this in-person um, it's a little different because you might have to be, somebody might need to be near your child if they're getting it all remotely through telehealth, but you can still keep going. You know, your BCBA who's handling your program should be giving you lessons and should be training people who are, you know, local to you who can be there in person and can really provide that one-to-one -one with just some guidance. And, you know, some of the stuff can be perfectly fine through telehealth, but some of it, you know, some of the play activities, you know, it's a little hard to, play, to do interactive play, but all of that doesn't mean that you're losing your intensity. 
And then from there, whether an AAC device or not, if he is vocal and he's been doing really well and he has like all those beginning words, I would say you want to stay vocal. However, since he likes letters and planets and science, that means he likes facts and things that stay the same, which means he could be a kid that's hyperlexic and you just don't know it. Mm-hmm. So are kids who see words and they they can they're sight, it's sight reading, but they might not have the comprehension for it. So what happens with those kids is school is intensely easy, right? Especially the first two or three years because the first two or three years of school is pretty much just all memory. And it's all tied with letters and numbers and things that don't change. You know, R-E-D is always read no matter what you say. So our kids that have that kind of um, talent or, you know, that ability, that visual memory, you're going to use that to strengthen all the vocals he has. So you can teach him words and how to say it. And he has a concrete vision of what that word means. And then you, have, you still teach him the receptive understanding of the word. So he has comprehension. So work with your BCBA, test out some sight reading words from some of the books that you know, and you never know. The first time we saw this uh, skill, it was with a two-year-old and as a kid who finished here and mom was freaking out because she basically turned down Sesame Street to answer the phone and her child actually who had never talked was sitting mm. on the screen reading all the words as they came up <laughs> <laughs> and she was like calling us hysterical you know she had just started therapy not too long ago and she she never even knew but it's just that the words provide the actual text provided him a prompt that he he had this really great memory and he could read or decode everything He didn't mean that, um, hyperlexia doesn't mean that you can, you know what it means. The comprehension may not be there. So you can walk down, these kids are always funny because you'll walk down the street and they'll be saying, no parking, seven to nine p.m. (laughs) They they don't know what it means, but they can decode the words. And so what you want to make sure if you have a child with hyperlexia is that you actually give them that meaning also and giving them that that meaning through ABA is a very quick way of um, working at it. And what's going to happen is he, you will see, because he loves letters so much, that his language probably, his spoken language will probably increase more quickly because it has that textual support. And then um, school is not going to be issue. Now that said, kids who like letters, numbers, and facts are typically very inflexible. So that is something I always tell families. It's a great skill to have. He's smart. School will be easy at the beginning, definitely. And school actually will probably be very interesting for him for the long run because letters are always there, right? You're always reading and writing. But what you have to work on then is the flexibility because the reason they love those letters so much is those letters never change. You know, spell a word, it just does not change. (laughs) It's always the one way in that language. And then once they learn other languages, they start to figure out other things. But use that that letter reading ability and use that to support all the vocal language. And you're going to see, you'll see vocal language explode. That's usually what happens. Okay. Um, We've gotten a couple of questions about potty training. I'm going to start with this one and then move to another one that just came in. But potty training regression after suspected trauma, how do we know, how do we know when to push? He was fully potty trained and now we've had to go back to pull-ups. There was no other way. Uh, He is seven. 
Uh, yeah. There, in many ways, it's hard for me to answer this because we don't know the level of understanding for the child, like how much she's really understanding. And unfortunately, trauma does happen to our kids just as well as to, you know, any typical kid out there. So, you know, a lot of it is with toilet training, I see it in our kids too. It's the one thing that they have full control of. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of prompt it. You can't, they have full control. And so if anything, I would still go back when we've had different kids come through that have had issues, we, we make potty training a really fun thing, you know, and filled with all the rewards that they love in every setting for using the potty, you know, in any form. And you have to be very consistent just with everything else. So you understand the trauma that's happened to it. And as long as your doctor has ruled out any kind of biomedical issues that might be associated, make sure that's all ruled out. And you can go about potty training the same way that like we do here in the sense that, you know, you really reinforce, you could have a potty party again if you did it that way. And, um, and if, I mean, it's kind of funny for the kids, they hate why they're sitting there, but when you bring all their favorite toys and videos into the bathroom, they actually don't have that much finish. <laughs> after they realize they have access to all this great stuff. So I would- what do you, Hang on one second though. I, I just want to ask this. What do you think about moving it out of the bathroom with somebody who's age seven? Because um, uh, I happen to know from a different question that they had written that the bathroom is particularly traumatic right now. So well, could, can okay. we take it out of the bathroom with a potty chair? Or is seven too old to do that? You can, but it's just um, transferring is difficult, you know? Yeah. But if there is some kind of trauma related to the bathroom, if there was a way to get something that looked like a toilet, you could start outside. I mean, my kids, when I used to travel a lot and in Australia, they all do potty training out in the yard, in the garden. Interesting. <laughs> it took that. me some adjustment. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, okay. In the they garden. All, yeah, the garden. Everybody, that's how they did toilet training with all the kids. And I had to like readjust a little bit. Um, <laughs> yes. I think I'd be washing my carrots off a little more thoroughly than I was before. Okay. So you could do it. It's just knowing that you have to transfer the skill. Okay. And that's, that's if transferring the skill is going to be the issue, then what you could do is also, you know, the toilet, um, the seats that you put in the seat. Yes. We've had some kids who start with that maybe on a toilet on a potty chair and then move that over and okay. it's big as of a transition okay i like that seven All is right. still okay i mean it can't it, a little further won't be but if he's been toilet trained before and there is actually no like biomedical issue um it, even though there's been some kind of trauma we don't know what it is we've been able to do it and this, the key is really making it fun and good and reinforcing Okay. All right. And then, um, so another, uh, but another parent has written in and said, any potty training advice for older kids who don't under the, understand the concept of the toilet? Okay. So one of the first things for all kids, whether young or small, but with the older kids, I actually asked this more, I realized is first thing you want to do is you still want to look at um, toilet training readiness physically. Mm -hmm. Are they staying dry through the night? Because if they're not, that is actually a physical mechanism, you know, that is 
it's a it's a real issue biologically or medically, you know, and that's something to talk to your doctor about, about like, why isn't this kid dry through the night? Or is it he dry through most of the night and then just at the very end when he wakes up, you know, that the accident happens there. So the toilet toileting readiness isn't deal. A lot of our kids on the spectrum have GI issues. And as long as they have GI issues, um, any kind of toilet training is almost unpredictable because they don't have control of their bowels and their stomach and everything else. So I would actually work on the GI issues first to try to figure out what's gonna help it, whether it's a diet or you know whatever it may be that is working with a biomedical doctor that works with kids, people on the spectrum and really working out those GI issues to try to figure, to heal your gut, right? If you have leaky gut, it's very hard to control when you're going or not. And what I've realized with a lot of the older kids is a lot of them do have those issues. They're not dry through the night and they have leaky gut. So I would actually go to your doctor first, you, you know, your, your primary care physician that really helps you with your child, try to address those issues and get that regulated so that your child does have some control. Because I have to say like the kids that have leaky gut, it's really hard to get, they have no control you know, on, on their bladder and, you know, their bowels a lot of times. So do those things first. And then after that, it's a behavioral thing, <laughs> you know, and for the older kids, um, I always tell parents, you need to look at your history of trying to potty train, because if you've tried and you've given up, you have to actually look at the timeline to see how long you tried before you gave up because basically what you're building is their tolerance and how long they have to fight before you give up. Yeah. You know, it's a form of like when we do extinction, which is a, a behavioral technique where you're basically ignoring the behavior and you're letting, you know, you're not ignoring the child, but you're ignoring the behavior and you're reinforcing the behavior not happening. Um, so, or you're reinforcing another skill. So it, I always look at toilet training and I tell parents, how long did you go when you tried? And sometimes it's one day, two days. Sometimes they'll be like, oh, we fought with him for 14 days, two weeks, and then we gave up. I would say, well, then that's going to be your baseline because he knows he can cry for 14, he can fight with you for 14 days before he even starts thinking about getting with the schedule to be trained. <laughs> so that matters too. And then I'd say get a good um, behaviorist, get a BCBA with you and work out what all of the reinforcers are for him. What are all the antecedents? What um, behaviors that he's gotten used to doing? Is there a sensory issue? Does he not notice when he's wet? If he notices when wet and he changes really and he changes his pants quickly, that's actually a really great sign to yeah. do training for toilet training readiness. Um, but work with your BCBA and you know really start looking at all the different. Um, issues that surround toilet training. Is it a behavioral issue? Is it a behavior, um, medical issue? Is it a sensory issue? Is, are there reinforcers that you're willing to remove from his current life so that they're special and you can use them just for toilet training? Because that usually, you know, the more motivating it is, they're neat. Initially, um, for the kids who get, who don't like to be wet and want to change quickly, it's very motivating. That's the motivation to get toilet trained. But if they don't care if they're wet, you have to have some kind of other external motivator or reinforcer for him because they're not, they're just not realizing they're wet. And it could be just like that whole physical state where they don't realize they're wet and that is its own issue. So 
you know, there's many things to do, many parts to go through this, but get <clears throat> and they can help you go through and I know a lot of times people don't have BCBAs near you but like if you can get anybody to even do it by telehealth it's possible to get okay. the direction they can just spend enough time through an iPad or another device watching your child interviewing you figuring out what the history is and figure out what the reinforcers are and they can walk you through it and make a plan for you okay so uh, Michelle says, hi from Florida. How do you feel about scripting? But I'm not 100% sure that what you mean by scripting is what I think scripting means. So let's see. But uh, they go on to say, my daughter is 17 and I did one sentence per day, five each week while on lockdown. I'm, I'm guessing that it's like a, a, uh, a sentence that you taught her that you scripted it out for um, and taught to her is what you mean by scripting. And she goes on to say she uses them now at school, but the speech therapists here don't use this. So when, when I think of scripting, I think of it as being like echolalia and movie talk where the child just says something that they've heard and they don't understand what it means. Teaching them a rote phrase that they can say at different times of the day, does that count as, as, as scripting? Is it the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. It's more of a method of teaching her to use language, you know? Um, she's 17, so you're not gonna go through the basics. Like if, he was, if your child was three, we would probably work on the flexibility and changing all these different ways. But at 17, <coughs> they're, adults, they're teens growing into adults and you need, they, need, they know what they want. <laughs> chances are you as a parent know what they want to so by teaching using this method of teaching a sentence for different situations does work it's a very quick way it's just that the speech therapist may want be wanting to work on maybe fluent um the pragmatics of it you know when you change your language according to the social situation or when you're changing your language so that it's not just not a memorized phrase and um or maybe you're teaching the script and the child doesn't and your child doesn't need a script because it's like how many of you when you were learning your ABCs thought LMNOP was one letter? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Everyone. And it's the same thing like when I when I get little kids and when I used to do a lot of therapy, the first kids that would come in if they talked, they all thought one, two, three was one number. <laughs> Interesting. Because people say one, two, three, go, or, you know, one, two, three, you know, whatever. And so, um, and it's the same way a lot of parents use the kid's name. So if, if they don't know sit down, but they know Tommy sit down and they just think Tommy sit down means sit down. They don't, Tommy is a name. So sometimes scripting, when you're teaching it this way, like one sentence per activity or one sentence per, you know, manned at request of what they want, so our kids will chunk language and think that all those words means one thing. And so when you go, when you go and you start trying to um, make some changes, so instead of saying, can I have juice, that, and teaching them to say, can I have a ball, they'll say, can I have a juice ball? Because they think like it's all one, it's, it's in the linguistic world, it's chunking language when you take one set and you just learn it for something. But for our adults, I have taught older, um, like 20 something year olds where it is faster to get them access and it teaches them to communicate. So, and as long, and when you meet that communication ability, a lot of um, problem behaviors go away. 
and yeah. that's a valid way of teaching language. It's just that if you want some flexibility in the language, or if you want her to start learning other types of language as an extension, you will have to go and teach every single sentence for her to communicate, and that would be hard. That's okay. Part of it, and I always have to give the disclaimer, I love speech therapists and I love OTs, right? Um, but I do think that a lot of times we, we have an expectation when we go to them because I think sometimes we're thinking that they're all the very best speech person. I know some speech therapists that work on developing conversational language and, and do it beautifully. But I think it's the exception, not the rule. I think that most speech therapists think of themselves as people who are facilitating the vocalization of speech. They're gonna work on what I call diction, what they call articulation, uh, right? And, and they're going to work on, some of them work on pragmatics, but a lot of them don't. And I hear this time and time again from parents that what parents want, we say we want our kids to talk, but that's not really what we want. We want our kids to be able to have conversation and tell us what they think and get their needs met. And I think that sometimes speech therapists are really focused and in a groove where they're trying to get your child to produce sound that can be understood. And I think that those two things, while they are parallel and they have a lot to do with each other, I, I don't think that all speech therapists are equipped to give parents what it is that they're really looking for. And I do wanna make the case that ABA can, um, because I think what you're doing with your daughter is great. I think that most adults, do this. I was a very shy, I know this is shocking to everyone. I'm still socially very shy, but I've been taught workarounds so that I know that if I'm at a party and I'm like, I don't know what to say, I've got like a drop down menu in my head of 20 things that are conversation starters that I can say to somebody. And I, and I learned those by rote. I think it's perfectly acceptable to give our kids things to say. Um, and then, you know, we want to make sure that they understand what those things mean and what the consequences of saying those things are, right? But, but I think it's great to give them starters um, and, and a phrase to say, like, you know, I, I, um, my son has a very particular order at In-N-Out, and, and it took us years to get him to be able to say it in the way that they understood, not the way that he languages it, but the way that they understood that this is how he wants his burger. Um, I think it's great to teach them those things. I think that your expectation that the speech teacher is gonna teach it, it sounds like they're not gonna. Um, some might, but it sounds like this person isn't gonna do it. But I don't, I don't, I think that they're gonna work on other things that might be valuable for your daughter, but you, you should still, I, I think, don't you, Evelyn, that she could still be working on it in this way at home. Just don't expect the speech teacher to do it. Yeah, and one of the, th the things that you can do is a lot of times, you know, speech people have the, they have a goal and they don't necessarily share that goal with the parents. They have an idea of what they want these children to do. And even though there's interview and you get to know each other, I realize that the goals of the speech therapist don't always match the goals of the parents. And so it would be good for you to ask them, like, what are the goals that you have for her? and see if you agree with them. And then also see, you know, you're gonna be evaluating for your daughter, how useful is it? And, um, and then there are some speech therapists still out there who actually, they kind of treat all their patients in the same way, but they don't realize that with autism, there are specific ways that work better than others. 
And so sometimes there are, you know, the younger speech therapists now are all trained, um, not all, but a lot of them do get some training about what ASD is. But the older speech therapists, a lot of them I still encounter still really don't understand what autism is. So when they're, when they're trying to teach in a more linguistic way, which how they've taught to somebody with autism, as opposed to the useful way, which is more of what ABA is, is starting with what language is useful. Sometimes they, they don't, and, and when you start with something so abstract, people on the spectrum have a hard time understanding what they're actually trying to get at. You know, yeah. this is the linguistic understanding of what speech is versus um, more of the ABA, which starts with, no, we need to work on communication and it has to be meaningful first. And then we can talk about, you know, anything that's a little bit more abstract surrounding it. So yeah, and you I'm doing this yeah. at home. Yeah, and I love that mom says she does. She works with her every day. You're doing a great job. And I think, you know, I have a friend who has an expression. She's like, you know, don't go to the hardware store looking for spaghetti and milk. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times as parents, we go to the speech uh, therapist and speech and language pathologist, and we think that we're going to work um, up on to making conversation and to helping our, our kids to be able to converse in their day-to-day -day situations. Sometimes it is going to the hardware store looking for spaghetti and milk, but you know that what you're doing is working. You keep doing what you're doing, mom, because that's wonderful. Uh, okay, I want to move. We, I, I'm not sure that I entirely understand, but I'm going to read it. Hi, my daughter, when she uh, feels bad or doesn't want to follow instructions, she goes into the washroom wash sometimes every minute. Uh, from, the, from last year, my daughter always cut her hair uh when uh whenever whenever we grow her hair most of the time i hide the scissors but uh she used the kitchen scissors so what do i do i think that those are related but they are actually two separate things because they were written in two separate parts evelyn so if if uh what do we do for somebody who's feeling nervous and um every time they feel nervous they get up and go to the washroom and then it can be as much as uh, once a, a minute and what do we do? For, we do. We've had many kids uh, since we've been doing Autism Live that um, are obsessed with cutting their own hair or cutting other people's hair. Um, and that, you know, if they can't do it themselves, they love to watch videos about it. It is a thing that some of our kids, uh, we have a mom that we love that from the very beginning of Autism Live, we call her haircut mom because, uh, you know, we, we never want to disclose any who anybody is but when somebody is writing about something we sometimes will call them a name that we know that won't identify who they are but so she is known as haircut mom because her son was obsessed with cutting hair um so uh what what do we do for those kiddos in both of those okay instances? so uh, it's a coping mechanism right going to the washroom when you're nervous and um you if you really want to target you need to look at what situations it happens in because it's a, probably a lot of different situations. So there's not gonna be one way of addressing it, okay? But let's say, it ha like I had a kid who, <laughs> he used to do it during recess and we actually, he would, he would use the first probably five minutes of recess to basically psych himself up. And then he'd come out and he'd be like, he'd have all this, like the order of who he was gonna go see on the playground, um, what he was going to play, what he would say to certain people. And it, it just took some time. And then what we did was we taught him to shorten it. 
Okay. Cause that sounds very effective that he was, it was using super effective. time to be very effective. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is it was a coping initially though. A lot of kids use it as a form of escape. It's a situation they're trying to escape because they realize I'm going to be here and I don't know what to do, or I don't like what's going on, or there's a noise or whatever it may be. And if I go to the washroom, no one tells me I don't, I can't go. It's the one place where if you say you have to go there, no one's going to say really no to you. They better not. <laughs> it's because, yeah, because it's a legitimate need if the need is actually there, but only that person's going to know if the need is there. <laughs> so if you feel like it has turned into an escape behavior or an avoidance behavior, then you need to evaluate each of the situations it comes in. So it really is going in and, you know, we talk about the ABCs, the antecedents, the things that happen behavior, what is actually happening, the behavior as she leaves, and then when she comes back, you know, what is, what's the consequence? So one consequence is she leaves and she just feels better because she's out of a situation that she didn't know what to do in. Um, but you take each of these situations and you, you have to really look at the situation and decide what skills is she missing? Does she have all the skills that she needs for this situation? Like for a lot of kids, if they don't know how to do something, and a lot of our kids are really black and white and want to be perfect. You know, they very inflexible. So if they see that, oh, you're playing a game, and they don't want to lose, they get, you know, they get out of there. And one way to get out of there is to go. Or if they maybe are seeing a person that they know is going to ask them a lot of questions that they don't want to be asking, they're going to leave. So then you can teach them ways where they can control the conversation and they can ask some questions so that the other people can answer. And it's not just all one way where they're getting everything. It could be there's a situation where it's just loud, you know, some kind of sensory aspect of the environment. And one way they leave is they can just close the door and they just feel a lot better and it blocks out the noise, the light, the smell, whatever it is. So you really have to look at each situation and see like, what is she escaping? And does she have the skills for that situation? And a lot of there are kids who do that kind of leaving, who come and go and have that ability. They do, a lot of them have it because in social situations, it's not like where adaptive routines we have. When you brush your teeth, you can brush them one way, the same way, and it doesn't really matter. But in real life social situations, we don't talk about things that stay the same. We talk about things that are different. We talk about things that are odd or, you know, didn't work the right way. And if you talk to a lot of like my, my, I remember the first time I had a teenager tell me, I like talking about how the grass is green and the sky is blue <laughs> because it's always like that. And he just really loved that. But mm -hmm. it out and you saw a friend and you said hey the grass is green they'd kind of look at you like yeah I know that like why are you telling me the grass is green now if you told me the grass is purple let's go look at it and let's see what that's like but it, but it was really interesting the first time I had a kid tell me no I actually like talking about the things that always say the same and then I had to tell him I said okay so that's something that you like but did you know all these other people they, when, when they want to carry on a conversation, they talk about things that change, are different, new things that are happening in their life, new, you know, just the newness is what you're sharing. And, you know, and it goes into perspective taking because they don't understand the perspective of someone else. But it can go, it, it can be an opening, but a lot of times it's teaching them some skills too, teaching them how to ask questions, teaching how for them how to tact like if they really to make a comment about a situation where it is along the lines of what they like about something or um, if you look at seven-year-old boys on playgrounds they don't ask questions 
they're constantly just pointing and telling you what they like. Check it out. Look at that. Blah, blah, blah. So-and-so just fell down. Like, you know, there it's a constant stream of just commenting. And a lot of times um, with us, with our kids, you know, we kind of go to the question answer method mm -hmm. action and little kids don't do that really. <laughs> so you have to look at how old this child is too. And what, you know, do they have the skills for that setting? If you are not sure, just go out and listen to all the kids that are at that age, you know, in your neighborhood, in your school. And you'll just start thinking about, you know, write down everything that you hear and then go back and listen. And it's like, can my kid do these skills? Can they ask these questions? Can they make comments on what they hear, what the environment shows? And then that might give the child more skills and teaching them that skill to be able to be used in those situations so they don't have to escape. And then as far as the haircutting thing, and as, as after I said this out loud and I was like, yeah, some of our kids are obsessed with cutting hair and yeah, it's some of our kids. And then of course, I, I need to own up to the fact that in COVID, this is, you know, I almost had to have an intervention because I kept shaving my head and cutting my hair off. Um, and I will say, uh, I'm willing to, I've talked before on the show about the fact that I have, you know, varying, depending on the day, varying degrees of OCD and, you know, previous panic disorder. But I will tell you that the thing that I learned through cognitive behavioral therapy is that OCD for a lot of people, maybe not everybody, it's a, and certainly for me is about when I feel like I don't have control over something, I look for the minutest thing that I can have full control over. Um, and I will stress out about that. And I can cut my hair. I cannot fix COVID. I cannot make sure that you get all the ABA that you want. And I stress out about that. So I will, instead of, you know, being on my little habit trail about that, about how can I get all the people on here, all the ABA that they need, I go, look at that little tuft of hair. I'm going to go cut that off. Well, um, just to interrupt you a little bit, yeah, it is another sim simple situation that typical, like four and five-year-old kids go and cut their hair, right? Yes, yes. It's, it's, an in it's a test of cause and effect. There you go. <laughs> Some of our kids will cut and just... Oh, wow. It's an easy way to just the cause and effect. It's like, yeah. in fact, you push a button, something pops up. I take a pair of scissors and I snip my hair and it's short now. Yeah. It's like, this is amazing. And then when, the, and for a typical kid, when they realize it just doesn't grow back, <laughs> that's when they have their issue. Um, yeah. But for a lot of kids, it is about our kids. It is about control. Give them, I'm always with the kids who want control. I always talk to parents about what part of their life, what can you give them where it is theirs? They need something that they control completely. And sometimes it is like, you know, when their hair, a lot of times actually I've redirected it to dolls. And they yeah. can and do whatever they want to their doll's hair, to their, you know, I don't care. And it does work and it's just redirected. Um, there are a group of kids though that the sensory issue of hair bothers them. And yeah. that it hits their neck or whatever it is. And so you, you really want to go and look at that too, because there are some kids that always want their hair pulled back. And the minute it is down, they're trying to get rid of it. And that's a quick way of getting rid of it too. I also want to know, cause you know, I'm all big on the toy thing. And um, one of the toys that across the last couple of years, autism parents have said to us that their kids really love are those LOL surprise dolls. Um, and that they're, they're, 
I know from art classes that there are minds that think uh, one of two ways. And if you put clay in front of somebody, um, you know, if they will sculpt the clay to make it into something and put it together and add to it, right? That's one way of thinking. And then there are other people who want to take the clay away to reveal something that's there. And that's an entirely different way of thinking. And that for many people, the taking away is a very satisfying thing. So like my son has a 3D printer and it's this joke between us because he'll print something and it has all these supports and you have to peel the supports away to reveal the thing that he printed. It's my favorite thing on the planet. It's oh, my I <laughs> right? I just like, I, he, he'll, he'll go, mom, I got a present for you. And it's this thing and it'll take me days to clear it away, but it's so satisfying to me. And it's the same thing with those LOL dolls. They, they take layer after layer and their little surprises built into it. So, um, you know, if my son gives me lots of three, 3D things to print, my hair gets longer. I'm just saying, uh, try an LOL doll and see if your kiddos like it. Um, and they have some that are different. Um, uh, in any case, something to consider. Uh, all right, we got, we got I, two questions I wanna get to before we get to the top of the hour. How do you recommend approaching and helping when a teenager is unable to regulate emotions and become self-injurious, intimidating, or hitting others? It's a very serious question. Oh, so many to this. Yeah. Because I don't know anything about their ability or understanding and skills. And I'd say initially, if it's turned into a problem behavior where they're hitting people, you have to go back and look at what we call the function of the behavior and really just see like, why are they doing this? Because it's a form of communication. You know, it's easier to hit somebody or punch something or throw somebody than it is to find the right word and then produce it in the way that somebody else understands it. So, you know, initially I would just take those severe behaviors. I'd separate it all out. So separate the emotional control from, you know, each of the other types of aggression or whatever it may be. And I would actually look at each case, see when it happens, try to figure out the function get a BCBA in there and try to figure out the function because functions change too. So it's always either for attention because they want access to something. So it's like, I'm going to hit you and you'll give me your doll or food or whatever it is. Um, or it's maybe an escape. If I hit you, you go away, you stop talking to me and it's amazing how fast that works. <laughs> or there's also like some sensory or innately satisfying part of being able to do this. And so like with self-interest behavior, the majority of the kids I've worked with don't like the feeling of hitting their head on the wall. They do it out of frustration. And I've even had really good kids who can throw themselves in a really dramatic way and their shoulder hits the wall, but their head never actually hits. <laughs> but they know that if they do that, everybody leaves them alone. So it's, it's very much an escape behavior. But then we do have some kids who, when they hit their head on the wall, they like the way it feels. And that has its own, you know, biomedical aspect of that. And, you know, there's all sorts of theories around it. Many of the kids who are self-injurious actually don't have the ability to communicate and can't tell you why they're doing it. There's all sorts of research and theories that, um, you know, like if you stub your toe on the wall, you get that pain. And the first thing you do is maybe hit your leg, right? And the reason you do that is that reflex is because pain receptors, they get redirected. Mm -hmm. 
and like you stub your toe, but then you hit your leg and then the pain receptors aren't all going to your toe. They're coming to wherever you hit your leg. Interesting. It somehow like lightens the pain load. So I know like with kids with autism with, you know, it's, it's been like 20 years, they were looking at the idea of when kids headbang or like bite themselves, that there's some kind of pain somewhere else going on. And by, by doing these other um, behaviors, it redirects the pain a little bit. So um, we've had all sorts of kids. We've had kids who have had you know, like stomach issues for years and years and until they could talk, they couldn't tell you. And um, one of the reasons they, they, they were hitting themselves is the pain was so bad. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, was, it wasn't a pain, it, was, it wasn't you know, head pain, the stomach pain or some other part of their body. So that in itself, I always say like, you need you know, go see your physician and just do a full workup and see like if anything's going on. But then if you have the, the emotional control, when families come in with like a teenager who comes in and they're just like, he just blows up. He's either happy or he's having a meltdown. Like, and the kid is completely vocal. Um, you know, they're yelling and screaming and often swearing, you know, at this time. Those kids often have, uh, I always tell those families, you need to give me about two years. <laughs> because the emotional control is the prefrontal con- cortex of your brain. And that's the last part of your brain to develop. It's the same place that planning and inhibition and all of those type of skills, understanding what's important, that's the front part of your brain. And that's the part of your brain that, you know, research will tell you it's the CEO of your brain. So you can have a lot of knowledge in your brain, but if you have no control of the knowledge and when to use it, it doesn't really do you that much good. So this is the last part of the brain to develop now. And there's doctors who say it's till the age of 25 for boys. Um, which when I first started, they used to say your brain stopped developing at five, then it was seven, then it was 10, then it was 13, (laughs) and now we're at 25. And, um, but emotional control, like the first thing, if I have a kid who comes in, the first thing I'm going to work on is teaching them inhibition, just how to stop. I'm not going to teach them what else to do. I just, and there's two types of stopping. There's non-vocal and there's vocal. If they're yelling out profanity and I need them to just stop, I'm gonna teach them to have some control on when to talk or not. So it'll be something like, I'll start with a word if they can read and I'll say, say this out loud when I point to you, say this out loud when I ring a bell, say this out loud when, you know, whatever the thing happens so that they don't, cause some, a lot of the kids you show them word and they immediately say it if they know what it is, you know, or if they hear a song, they wanna sing with it or they hear, you know, they, you start a phrase and they wanna say the end of it. Um, so initially I'll work on just on inhibition, or if there's something they want to touch, I'll work on non-vocal inhibition. You just stop touching. And so I really start at that, those really uh, beginning places of executive function skills, because if you are having some emotional issue, you know, if you're going to have a meltdown, it's because something didn't go your way and maybe language, you can't find it fast enough to do something, or, you know, it just comes out. You have to work on those easier skills first, you know, the ability to just stop yourself. And then once you can stop yourself easy enough, then you're going to go on and try to find the words to get what you need or what you want or what's not going right. And then that was the beginning of learning how to argue, right? Because <laughs> if you can have the words, then arguing is a powerful tool because that's what typical teenagers are doing. They're constantly arguing with their parents, right? And the New York Times had an article about how to argue, how to fight with your teen during COVID. <laughs> you know, um, it's a powerful tool. And... But 
if you, if language doesn't come naturally and they can't find the words and just stopping is a hard thing, you start at a lot more basic level and it takes time. I always tell families, you need to give me time because I'm going to really start at a, a level where they're like, what are you doing? I would say, I'm just teaching them how to stop. I, you know, and I, and I, I, I want to remind us all that we were all teenagers at one point and it was hard for all of us. And many of us um, were not on the spectrum and none of us were going through COVID. And I just want to remind all of us that we need to make sure I love that movie, um, the Disney movie, is it in and out where they show uh, all, all the- Inside the Out. Inside Out, that's what it is. Um, and, and what was particularly poignant to me watching it was this idea that for our kiddos that joy has to move to a back seat position as they move into teenage uh, years. And I, I guess I never really thought of it that way but I, and I wanna rail against that. I, I have a teenager right now and I know that you know, part of my full-time job as a parent right now, I always, I always think about Dr. Grampuchet saying it has to be fair. And right now, very little is fair. Yes. And I'm constantly trying to find enough things to make his life reinforcing as it is right now. Um, so, you know, I, I, I hope that this parent will find some professional support to help them yes. in their endeavors to help this young person. Um, but I, but I think that somewhere along the line, I just want to put it in your back pocket that we got to find the way to what is reinforcing for this individual. Because mm -hmm. um, the teenage years are hard, no matter what, and it's just extra now. And you have to give them some control. Yes. And, it's the, and for parents, sometimes it's harder for the parents, right? For the teen to give oh, yeah. control. And, but you have to really work out like what is fair for him. What can he control of where you're not going to have an issue, even if it's not how you would do it your way. If that's the way his room looks right now, it's the, how his room looks. <laughs> there you go. We've only got 30 seconds, but I, and we're not going to be able to answer this in 30 seconds, uh, but I got to address it. I have a three-year-old just diagnosed and they are saying 20 hours of ABA. That seems like too much with preschool. What are your thoughts? Oh, depends on his skill level. Get somebody to recommend. It's, it's intervention shows 40 hours a week. And that 40 hours can be some help with him at preschool also, helping him make use of the preschool time. Do not put him in preschool because everybody else is doing it. That's not yeah. a good reason. So if he is going to preschool and just playing on his own by himself and not playing with anybody else, that's not a good function of preschool. And I'm gonna, that's, and that's Evelyn's expert opinion. And I'm going to give you my parent opinion that if you got a diagnosis at three, then that means that your child has skill deficits enough for an expert to, uh, to diagnose it. And I would stay away from preschool right now and fight, fight, fight with everything you have to get a 40 hour ABA program. Worry about preschool next year or the year yes. after, but, but this at three, if you have a diagnosis, then any insurance company worth their salt is going to give you a 40 hour program and say that they're going to, your insurance will cover it. Take advantage of that and don't let anyone get in your way, least of all a school. And, and I used to be a teacher. I love school, not saying negative against school, but that's not what's been shown to be effective for a three-year-old on the spectrum. Would they enjoy it? Possibly, but it's, you know, I, I, they need the 40 hours. That's what yeah. we did. I'm never, I'm never sorry. But yep. that's my parent, that's my parent advice. Uh, but Evelyn is the expert. 
<laughs> Ellen, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We appreciate you more than you could possibly know. We absolutely adore you. Uh, we're, we're a couple of minutes over now, but we started late. So I guess it all evens out, but I know you've got things to do. I just want to remind people we're back tomorrow and we have the fabulous guest, Michael Tolson Robles. He is uh, on diagnosed late on the spectrum. He is an artist. He calls himself and he should call himself a savant artist. The paintings that he paints are insanely beautiful. And sometimes he's one of those painters that they set up the canvas and they have the audience there and he takes four paintbrushes and he goes like this and he goes like that. And you see this horse running in the rain and you go, what just happened? <laughs> um, and, and he didn't know he could do that until later in life when he got a diagnosis with autism. So he's going to be with us tomorrow talking about some exciting things that he has going on. You're just not going to want to miss it, you guys. Uh, so that's tomorrow. Until then, thank you so much for being with us, Evelyn. Until then, um, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now, you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.